Got 35 minutes. The floor is open. Any questions from this morning's message in Luke chapter 7? Danbarth. Not a question, but mostly just an observation that when Simon was having the thoughts about Mm -hmm. if he knew what kind of a woman this was, he wouldn't associate, and then Jesus addressed him, and the first thing that Simon said is, yes, teacher? (laughs) I just thought that was, you know, that in his mind he's having this complete, you know, it's like, what is this stuff? But then he addresses him as, as teacher. Well, I don't, I don't know if Simon realized Jesus was reading his mind at that moment because Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I am a prophet, Simon. I mean, Luke does this for our benefit. We realize Jesus is responding to the unspoken thoughts of Simon. As far as Simon's concerned, he's thinking, who is this guy? And all of a sudden Jesus says, I got something to say. It, well, that's a coincidence. You know, I'm just thinking. But it's not as clear and made, until maybe further on in this lesson that Jesus absolutely was tracking with his thought. But right off the bat, hey, Simon, can I have a word with you? Can I say something? We know he's answering him. We know it's prophetic. Simon, I don't think, does. So, But no, no, fair enough. But it's respectful enough title. He's clearly, he's a teacher. He's been teaching this whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts? Complaints? Yes, Linda, you got a complaint. Excellent. All right. Can't wait to hear it. No complaint. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I have two questions. Yes. Um, when it comes to the reputation of the woman, obviously, usually they stone these people. Yeah. So, and you would think if she just even came in the room, people would be trying to remove her from the situation before she was even allowed to get in there. Right. Yeah, we don't know how she got in. As regards to stoning, Rome had taken away from Israel the right to, to the capital crimes to, to, to kill. That's why ultimately they had to um, appeal to Rome to put Jesus to death. They didn't stop them from trying periodically. They tried to kill Jesus on their own. But there's also an indication that um, there was more tolerance. They weren't strictly observing the Mosaic law. So you're right. If this woman weren't adulterous, and probably even if she was, a, I'm not sure what the Mosaic law says to do to a prostitute, but certainly an adulteress would be stoned to death. But the fact that she's living and breathing now doesn't mean she isn't because they couldn't, they didn't have the authority to kill her. Um, Zeb wants to chime in and say something. But if, if that doesn't answer where you're coming from, we'll get back to you and we'll just pass the mics around. There is also, whoa, I'm loud, Adam. See, Zeb knows how to, <laughs> Zeb knows how to speak into a microphone. So everyone else is like, I have a question. And... I'm scared to talk into the microphone, so I'm going to hold it like this. No, <laughs> yeah. okay. Uh, Anyway, um, with with uh, any type of an execution, there was the requirement of two or three witnesses as mm. well. Mm. So her notoriety could have been based more on hearsay than eyewitness yeah. accounts. Yeah. So it's possible that they they couldn't have justifiably executed her under those under the Mosaic Covenant anyway. Right. Well, and if she's a prostitute and she's got Roman clients, Rome might have no interest in having her put to death or charged with anything. Um, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. Did that? Would you want to go in here also, that Linda or? Well, it's weird. Some of the commentators wanted to try to say that she was just maybe um, diseased, or her husband had a shameful occupation. But a woman 
of or in the city a sinner, a sinner in the city? No, it's, it really has to come down to something that one of those things would be that bad. I, I really don't think you got any other option than adulterous or, or um, uh, prostitute. But the end of the, And Luke, I think, in part protecting her reputation, doesn't tell us her name. I mean, maybe that's a kindness on Luke's part. I mean, because every time you see Rahab, it's Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute. Um, so this woman might be thankful that such was who she was and that she's not so-and-so the ex-prostitute, you know. Um, she could just be Lisa or something, you know. Um, anyway, go on. Okay, and the other question was, could you expound a little bit on verse 47 when it says forgiven little? Because that kind of indicates levels. Sure. I don't think this is, I, I think there's a good point with parables and with illustrations. When you're dealing with an illustration or parable, you're looking for the main point. You don't want to try to stand on all four legs. Um, I think in the same way that back in chapter 5, Jesus um, speaks from the Pharisee's point of view. He, when he says, oh, you're, you're healthy, you don't need a doctor. Jesus isn't really telling the Pharisees they're healthy. He's clearly adopting their viewpoint and showing it to be kind of ridiculous. Oh, it's the healthy don't need a doctor. The sick need a doctor. So, of course, I'm not going to your guys' parties because you're all good. I go to where the people need me. You know, I think in the same way, the same mentality is because you estimate your sins as small, you don't love much. I don't think he's speaking to whether Simon's actually forgiven. I mean, you could press this hard and say, but he was forgiven, little loves little. Simon's forgiven. That's not the point. The point is your estimation of yourself. That's, that's the point that's been repeatedly made. The Pharisees don't view themselves as having big problems with God. They got no problems or small problems. And so it's not getting down to whether or not there's people with big sins and little... Now, other places in the Bible make it clear we, we are judged or would be judged outside of Christ for specific sins. Not sin in the abstract, not sin in general, but the list of offenses was nailed to the cross. The book of the dead is open and each one is judged according to what he did. So there, we, we will not all, those who stand before the great right judgment will not all have, they will, there will be levels of guilt because there will be bigger sinners and let, some people just lived longer. They had more time to sin. Um, so there is that differentiation, but no, I don't think there's some people with small sins who get forgiven a little bit. Okay. You're somewhat forgiven. You're little forgiven. No, that's not what's going on. Rather, it's just like the earlier showing, this is the way you perceive yourself. And that's why you didn't honor or love me. I I don't think at this point, Simon's forgiven. He can't even decide if Jesus is a prophet, you know? So, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't press it too far as if now we've got little forgiveness and you're one-third forgiven and this guy's three-fifths forgiven and no, no, not at all. Um, not at all. But good question, good question. Others? Camp, app, people, you got anything? Oh, we got one over here. Oh, hold, hold, microphone, there's rules. There's rules. Hello. Sarah, so hold on a sec. Sarah, do you like, are you thankful for the microphones? Very thankful. Very thankful. Do it for Sarah. <laughs> Hello, do it, Sarah. Do it, do it for Chris Dion. Do it okay, for those people. I've always uh, kind of thought this is the same account from a different point of view as in John 12. What can you say to me to uh, convince me otherwise? John 12? Hold yeah, on. Yeah, John 12, 1 through 8, where Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. 
Ah, that's yeah. the same. Oh, John 12 and Mark 14. This is also in Mark 14. Okay. Um, be, well, a couple things. One, um, Lazarus is a disciple and follower of Jesus. Two, this takes place shortly before Jesus' crucifixion. So the timing is wildly off. Um, Jesus doesn't even begin to head to Jerusalem until Luke 9. You get that connection in Mark 14. In Mark 14, if you want, go to Mark 14. Let's go to Mark 14. I prepped Mark 14, so that's why I was kind of surprised with the parallel in John 12. But either one will do. Go to, go to, Mark, go to Mark 14. Um, Verses um, three through three through nine. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, first off, head feet. Um, there were those that said to themselves indignantly. Why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is right up before the crucifixion. Um, and truly I say, wherever the, my gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So you've got head versus feet, the timing's off, Simon the leper. Now granted, Simon and Simon, fair enough. Um, and no indication of the wiping with tears, no indication, the argument's different. In, in, in Luke, it, she's doing what she did because of her great love, because she's been forgiven much. Here, she's getting me ready for my burial. Um, let me go to John 12 and see what's going on there as well. John 12, six days for the Passover, Jesus, yeah, six days before Jesus gets crucified. Um, Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So if, if this is the same event, then this, this Pharisee is Simon, who's also a leper, who's also the one who dies and gets raised from the dead, whose, whose um, sisters are Mary and Martha. Um, and in Luke, those people get introduced in the next chapter, in eight, which would be really odd to have a story with them and then introduce them later and not indicate these are the same people. So to me, the notion, the biggest thing is the time and the difference of the head versus the feet. Yo, go to verse 3 in, Luke, in Matthew or? John 12, 3. John 12, 3. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was around to betray him, said, Why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because of he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said to her, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Okay, so here we've got Jesus' disciples going, but there's no mention of Jesus' disciples in Luke. I, I, think you have the, I think you have twice Jesus gets anointed by a woman who washes his feet with her hair. And that makes him like a strange coincidence. The timing's wildly off. This is a week before the crucifixion, and in Luke... There's a big marker point in Luke 9:51 when from that moment on Jesus set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. We have not reached that point. That comes right after the Mount of Transfiguration. So where we're in in Luke is the setup 
for Jesus to go up on the mount and meet with Elijah and Moses, which is why Elijah has been so, and even the whole theme of, is this the prophet? Is this the prophet? Well, that's what we're in thematically. He's going to go up on the mountain. He's going to see Moses and Elijah. God's going to talk. And then coming down from the mountain, he's setting his face to Jerusalem. So timing-wise, and with John giving you the time, there's no, well, maybe this is some other time. I, I don't see how it could be the same event. Yes. No, exactly. And to make these the same group of people and stuff without mentioning them. Well, even in Luke 80, well, go to Luke 8. Hold your, no, sorry. Luke 10, sorry, 10 what? 10.38. Luke 10.38. Now, as they went on their way, entering a village, a woman whose name is Martha welcomed him to her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with um, much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care about me? So if this is the same account, then these are the sisters of the man whose house he ate at in chapter 7. And Luke makes no connection or mention of that. Um, Lazarus also, no mention of him anywhere being a Pharisee. This guy's four times called a Pharisee. So I think you just have two people named Simon whose house he went to where something similar happens. But this is happening near the beginning of his ministry. The other one's happening at the end, like a week, six days before the crucifixion. But, but yeah, no, it's a fair, it's a fair point. Um, it's just I think the dating is irreconcilable of, of when it takes place because we're told when that takes place. And there's just no way. We're in the Passion. I mean, this is the Passion Week in, in John and in, and in Mark. We're in the Passion Week. Go. No, go. They're both in Bethany, right? They're both in Bethany. Oh. Whereas if anything, we're still in Nain. If anything, we're still in Nain. That He uses the Greek police city, and he calls it, as he's approaching the city, out came the city, and this is a woman known in the city. Well, we haven't moved. There's been no movement in Luke. So the city in which she's known to be a sinner, the antecedent would be Nain. The most natural one. I, mean, I wouldn't die on that hill, but Luke uses the same term to describe the town. We've had no geographical movement, and she's known in the city as a sinner. What city? Well, the one that he called the city earlier, Nain, which would be verse 11. Compare verse 11 of Luke 7 with 37. Because um, not everything's called a city. Some are called villages, some are called towns, depending on their size. So wherever he is, this is another city. And there's been no geographic movement and no markers of time taking place. Because you'll see the raising of the widow's son. When they heard of this, disciples of John went to John, they came back, and then we move forward. So, whereas the other one's clearly in Bethany. This, yeah, I wouldn't die in the hill of the location, but I'd think the most natural location would still be in Nain, wherever that is. I mean, you can look on your maps and find it, but Nain, Nain is not mentioned in the Old Testament or anywhere else in the Bible. So you've got to go outside the Bible to try to figure out where Nain is. Um, and I'm not as interested in spending my ships doing that. So, um, yes, what? Right, and he describes that in chapter 12. That was a famous occurrence. Oh, let me get the mic. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. No, you, you've got to play by the rules. I get what the microphone isn't there, but now that the microphone's here. Okay, go. Okay, so yeah. just you we were talking about how between you know the three Gospels mm -hmm. that um, you know, Mary is mentioned, Mary and Martha, yeah. um, and how 
the the wiping of the feet were different accounts. Mm-hmm. But in John eleven yep. two, it points out, I think, that it was previous. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment. Right. But um, I think John is writing last, his gospel last, and there's a lot of indications inside the gospel of John that his readers are aware of all the events. For instance, in John 3, um, it says, this is before John the Baptist was arrested. In John's gospel, nowhere does he record the account of John the Baptist being arrested. So he's assuming his readers are aware that John was, in fact, arrested. This event, this woman, being in the other gospels, I think was so infamous, well, widely reported, that he indicates, even before he tells the story, this is that one. And then in the very next chapter, he tells the story of her doing that. If not, if not, it still happened twice. It was just the same woman who did it twice, right? So you still have, regardless, either way, you have two washings of Jesus' feet because she would have done it once, and then in 12, she would have done it again. I think it's far more likely that he, knowing that his readers are aware of this, that one, and then he tells, he's telling the story chronologically, but as he introduces a new character, oh, you've probably heard of her. She's the one that washed Jesus' feet with, with her hair, and then in the very next chapter, when it shows up in the chronology, because he's got to tell how Lazarus dies first before this can happen. He, so he has to tell that first. Then, But as he introduces them in 11 to tell the story of Lazarus' death, it's that Mary tells the story of Lazarus' death, resurrection, or resuscitation more accurately. And then in 12 gets on to the story that he set up. That's also a Hebrew way of, um, of telling things. You can go to Jonah. Anyway, and you say what's coming, and then you tell the story of how you get there. But uh, that's an excellent point as well. You guys are being, this is good. Keep on my toes. I like this. Um, anyone want to push this any further? Let's, let's do it. But Ten miles southeast of Nazareth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ten, ten miles southeast of Nazareth. Oh, no, I've got the maps that say it. My, here's what I'm trying to figure out is what does Theophilus know? And, and he had to tell Theophilus that um, Capernaum was a town of Galilee in, in chapter 4. So I'm not assuming that Luke thinks that Theophilus is an ancient Near Eastern scholar who's got a map of Israel. Therefore, since nowhere else in the Bible is Nain mentioned, if he thought the location of Nain was crucial or significant, I'd assume he'd give Theophilus that information, as he did when he said, Oh, Capernaum, a city of Galilee. He doesn't do that here, so I don't think the location of Nain is terribly significant because I don't see anything to indicate Luke thinks it's terribly significant. But that, that's what I'm saying why I don't, is I'm not as worried about it, because I'm like, okay, if Luke thought this were important, he'd tell Theophilus and us what's important. Do you get track, track the logic there? When an author evidences he's able and willing and will give extra information so his reader can understand, and then he doesn't, I'm going to think then that extra information isn't critical to understand the point. Yes? That's possible. You know, the, some of the cities, there were several cities with the same name That's going up into Asia. interesting possibility. There's more than one Capernaum. Interesting. Okay. I'll have to, I'll have to chew on that. Uh, but let me give you other examples, though. Like in John, in John 1, John tells the reader what the Hebrew rabbi means. It said rabbi, which means teacher. So what does that tell you about John's assumptions of his readership's knowledge of Judaism. It's not very high. 
Oh, no, no. But what I'm saying is I'll read commentaries or listen to people who insist that knowledge, all sorts of extra biblical knowledge, is crucial to understand John. And I want to respond and say, John had to tell his readers what rabbi meant. Like, let that sink in. You don't know what rabbi... I'm, and that's an important point. And if you're going to understand what they just called Jesus, you need to know what it means. So rabbi, which means teacher. And he goes on, right? So he does not have a very high estimation of his readership's awareness of Judaism. Um, and there are other places where he supplies information. But then I'll see people try to come in with extra biblical information. I, I remember one message, someone was arguing, apparently there's evidence that in John 7, that, that the water pouring ritual during the Feast of Booths, that, that there's this water pouring ritual. There's no mention of it in the Bible, but that in the 400 years between Malachi and Jesus, they developed a water-pouring ritual. And so when Jesus stands up in the middle of the temple and says, whoever comes to me out of his heart will full rivers of living water, Jesus is making a masterful sermon illustration of what's going on in the background. And I'm thinking, that may, let me be clear, that may be true. Like, that may be for what Jesus was doing in the moment. John has no interest in it. If he did, he'd tell us. And so... It's entirely possible that the event of Jesus preaching in the temple on the Feast of Booths, it's entirely possible that event had that significance of the water pouring ritual. My point would be, when I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who taught that, it has nothing to do with John's gospel. Because John doesn't think we know what rabbi means, let alone extra-biblical water pouring rituals. And if he thought it was part, if, if John wanted us to go there, he'd give us the information, and he didn't. So it's, it's not in the view. This is where I get back to the sort of the camera angle thing. It's not on the screen. It's not on the stage. It's not where the camera's going. We're not looking at that. And I want to, as closely as I can, follow where the text wants me to look at, where it wants me to slow down, where it wants me to gaze and think, and let the text, like a screenplay, move around what I'm looking at. That, that's all I'm saying. And so if Luke doesn't tell me where Nain is... I'm not going to worry too much about it because it apparently isn't mission critical information. That's all. Yes. Did Maria want to say, I saw your, did you not raise a hand, Marina? You're good. Oh, well, you think that, um, you just said that, that they didn't know what rabbi means, but you think that they knew John the Baptist story. Yeah. Yeah. So, but how does that, because come that together? Would be, these would be, these would be oral reports. When John at the end says, I write these that you, may, that you may believe, an equally legitimate translation of that verb is that you would keep on believing. The fact that John wrote last, the fact that John wrote excluding almost entirely the material covered from Matthew, Mark, and Luke indicates he's aware of them. You don't by accident... Okay, you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are synoptic gospels from the word synonym. They, they have a lot of overlap. Events that happen in one happen in the other. 80% of John's gospel is unique to John. And of course, John's going to have the resurrection, the crucifixion. When you eliminate the Passion Week, John is almost entirely exclusive material. Apart from the feeding of the 5,000, everything else in John doesn't appear anywhere else. That doesn't happen by accident. Now, you could just say it's just the leading of the Holy Spirit, but if you factor in the, the internal evidence that suggests that John thinks his readers are aware of, say, the arrest of John the Baptist, is far more likely, I think, that John is writing a supplemental gospel, being aware of what's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's also telling you these things, which makes then the notion of John being written that you would continue believing, the perseverance of faith, as opposed to creating faith. 
um, far more likely in my mind. I mean, Luke even says to Theophilus, I want to write so the things you've heard, you will have certainty of. So the, the basic outline of the story, John is assuming his people know. Details of Jewish culture and, and Jewish words, not so much. So John the Baptist pray, plays prominently in all the tellings, all the gospels of Jesus of Jesus' life, death, and ministry. And so he's assuming they know John got arrested at some point. That was common enough news. John was pretty publicly in his, his rebuke of Herod. It was a public thing. And then beheaded, put on a silver plate. That type of would have gotten around the court. So knowing, anyway, go, go. But if they were aware of, I, I guess I need yeah. to know how to speak into yeah, yeah. this. Um, if they were aware of John the Baptist, wouldn't they then just also know that a rabbi is a teacher? I mean, isn't that a little bit Apparently of a not. more basic no. understanding? No. No. I mean, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to come to the text and reverse engineer what I'm supposed to know. So when the, when the author expects me to be aware of something, then I say, okay, apparently I'm supposed to know John was arrested. Because he says, this is before John was arrested. And another event, he alludes to the baptism of Jesus, never has it. John 1, John says, this is the one of whom I saw the Spirit descend like a dove. And you really kind of have to have the other Gospels to know what on earth he's talking about. Because he actually doesn't record the baptism of Jesus. But he speaks of it, John does. Um, which the readers are like, what are you talking about the Spirit? Then you get a copy of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You're like, oh, I know what he's talking about. And then when he gets to John, this was before we got arrested. Nowhere in John's Gospel does he record John being arrested. So I have to conclude, John thinks I know this. Likewise, when he says rabbi, which means teacher, what do I have to conclude? I mean, is God wasting words? Is, is John giving us superfluous information that's completely not needed? He's not certain his audience knows what rabbi means. Now, I get you. How do you know the one and not the other? I'm just saying what's inescapable for me is he thinks I know the one, and he's not certain I know the other. And that's where I'm trying to draw my measuring level of how much information is necessary to understand this book. How much information does the author think is required to be understood? That, that's all I'm getting at is. And I'm trying to just observe from the text what he's assuming of me and then making sure my interpretation is coming from that perspective. In other words, I'm just suspicious if you say, no, 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 you can't understand this unless you're a scholar on ancient Near Eastern backgrounds and geography. That's what I want to say. But they don't know what rabbi means. You know, like, come on, man. And I'm also worried, because if that's true, then only scholars and historians, I tried inventing a word there, I'm sorry, Scholars and historians can, can read the Bible and understand it. And I've met people who that's the implication that's been given to them. I've never looked at the maps, and I've never studied the archaeology, and I, I, I might mess this up. And I'm just like, take comfort. John expected to be understood by people who didn't know what rabbi meant. Luke's expecting to be understood by someone who, now he tells us to give you confirmation. So there is a certain amount of antecedent knowledge that Luke is assuming, right? This isn't your first time hearing this. This is why it's great for us. We've heard this stuff before. Luke, Luke isn't, in, in the first instance, for someone who's never heard the gospel message or never heard the story of Jesus because he's writing to confirm, to give certainty, right? Um, that's, that's, that, I'm just trying to get my cues from the text of where they think I'm coming from. If this seems esoteric or if this seems a little abstract, I apologize. I, I submit it is, I think, very important in how we go about reading. Yeah, Elsa. 
No, I just want to say, I think the reason why he had to explain what rabbi is, I mean, John was written, what, 95 AD? Oh, yeah. Jerusalem was destroyed yep. in 70 AD, so it's almost a generation that yep. that whole priestly thing was gone. I well, mean, we know, Jews were scattered. Well, and we know from Acts that the Jews were scattered, right. so there wasn't any right. one place where the language and the tradition mm. of the people was mm. thick. Yeah. And so most of the people reading John's gospel didn't know Hebrew. No, yeah. And John was a historic figure. I mean, yeah. everybody knew. Oh, that. a guy who stood up to the to the mm. king mm. and was was executed. Mm. That that's notable. You know, we we know the names of people who did that. We we know Guy Fox. We know other people mm. who we, we don't probably don't know much else about Guy Fox except he's a got dude who tried to blow up Parliament, <laughs> right? And they wear the little masks and stuff. But people who stand up to big public figures and get killed and caught, those last. But I don't, that doesn't mean you know a bunch of French words or English words. He, that was England, right? England. Parliament. Yeah, okay. Well, Another, yeah. just a bit of useless information. Um, uh-huh. Capernaum means field of repentance or city of comfort. Interesting. That is cool. Okay. Okay, we got five minutes. Anything else from this? Or we can keep going further with this. Because um, that point that I tried to make for the last five or six minutes about getting the thing from the text is huge. It's absolutely huge. And I want you to know that God, God in writing the text, every time you see an author give supplemental information, you can take comfort because they're, they're recognizing, keeping in mind that the readership may not know stuff. And so then the question is, can I trust the human author and can I trust the divine author that if in any one place he's going to give me supplemental information, that he will give me the information I need to understand him? And I think you got to trust him. Otherwise, the whole supplemental information is pointless. You know, um, if, if we're all expected to go study ancient Jerusalem for a couple months in college first, then what, don't tell me what rabbi means. Duh. You know, um, don't tell me where Capernaum is. I already know. Um, or the authors know their readers might not be aware of all this stuff, and when they think it's important, they give the information. And when they don't, they, we go on. We just have to trust them. We want to trust that the author's going to tell me what I need to understand it. Um, anyway, I think that's huge, because it means we can understand the Bible, and not just a select priestly class of scholars in the academic tower. What's the point of unlocking the Bible from the Vatican and taking the Bible out of the hands of the priesthood to then lock it up in the academic tower so that the scholars alone can interpret it. Doesn't make much sense to... Anyway, sorry. I'm going a rabbit trail. This, this is a hugely important topic in my mind. One, we have time for one or two questions. Let's go. Five minutes. There we go. Camp happiness, poop folk. Justin. This isn't specifically about the message, but I was just wondering if there's a kind of very explicit biblical definition of murder, because I took a class on medical ethics and the amount of causes for death you can see that can or cannot seem intentional make murder very hard to define. Sure. Um, well, for instance, the, the, the commandment, thou shalt not kill, is really the Hebrew, thou shalt not murder. I mean, the Bible distinguishes between killing and murdering. First off, there is a distinction. Um, I would say almost certainly the Bible then distinguishes between the unintentional killing and intentional killing, the manslaughter, and cities of refuge are set up, and 
for the man's slaughterer to flee to, to avoid the avenger of blood. And the key issue there is intent. So if you and I go out and we're cutting trees and the axe head flies off my axe, and this is the actually example given in the text, and it strikes you and you die. The real issue is, did we quarrel before we went out? <laughs> because if we quarreled before we went out, it's far more likely it was intentional. And if it's intentional, I need to get put to death. If it's unintentional, I can flee for refuge, even while they respect the fact that some people in your family won't be satisfied with that. And so the way the law mitigates against the desire, the avenger of blood can kill me if I leave the city of refuge. And so there is still a consequence. It's kind of like even now, if somebody accidentally, you know, they, they, get, they get drunk and they drive and they crash the car, I didn't mean to kill them. There's still punishment. We recognize there's a distinction between murder and manslaughter. Well, the law represents, recognizes the difference. But I'd say the single biggest motive is intent. Um, press further. Uh, murder. Um, can we define killing now? To cause to die. So... Um, in that case, taking someone off of life support, even though it's kind of a merciful thing to do, is killing? Yeah, I think of this route to kill is to cause to die. Um, sure. So, yeah, you're killing. I mean, you, I guess more complicated, if you're talking about the life support, to remove that which causes life, I think could be argued to be different from taking life. You know which I mean? is where I have trouble. Right, right. No, um, so to remove help, like my dad went into a coma and died. And once he went into the coma, they knew he weren't coming out of it. Um, and they just dosed him with morphine to make sure he was comfortable. And there's a sense in which they weren't that worried about how much morphine they were giving him because he weren't coming back from this. Um, and the main thought was we just want to make sure he's not in pain. He almost certainly isn't, but, you know. But they're not worrying about, well, can he handle this much morphine? Because he's not. And, and I think that's, a, that's appropriate. If someone's on a ventilator and they're, they're brain dead and you turn the ventilator off, have you killed them? Well, you, if, no, you would not be guilty of the command to murder. Whether or not you should do that is a tricky ethical question. I don't think whatever you've done, you're guilty of murder. Um, keep going, keep going. Where, where, are you, where, are you, where are you going with this? Well, I mean, that's an entire semester's worth of discussion. But <laughs> well, I've got a book on bioethics. I'd be happy to let you borrow. I'd love to okay. see it, yeah. Uh, no, 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 see me afterwards. I've got a book on bioethics. It's about this thick. You'll love it. Um, <laughs> and it's by D.A. Carson, and he, he's, he's a slouch. So, no. Um, no, these are, these are heavy and heady issues, obviously. Heavy and heady issues. But not all causing death is murder. That's the biggest thing, but... Anything else? We good? What? Oh, we got another one. Oh, nope. Yep. Maybe. No. Uh huh. I'm, I'm probably going a different vein than he did, but wasn't it Dr. Kevorkian that did mercy killings? You know who I'm talking about? Yes. He would inject them. So I can. Kevorkian. Isn't, isn't yeah. that kind of murder? Oh, I think. Well, I think there's. Yeah, I think the there's a world. Of, well, here's the thing, Wanda. There's a world of difference between introducing something which causes death and taking away something which props up life. Okay? There's a world of difference between uh -huh. taking away a prop that's keeping life going, like a ventilator, and introducing, you would be healthy if I didn't add this new thing that's now killing you. That's totally different things. Right. Um, totally different things. And, and that distinction's huge. Because there are people who just say, you know what, I don't want 
this ventilator keeping me breathing? Right. Did you turn it off, please? And I mean, they're conscious and they say that. You know what I mean? Now, whether or not that's a right decision or not, no one's murdering them. Right. You know what I mean? That, that's all I'm trying to get at. Whereas if I give you a shot and you die as a result, and it's because the shot was poison, I have killed you. I have murdered you. You know? That's what I thought. Okay. Wendell. The only thing I was going to say was it goes back to your original statement. It, it goes back to intent. Yeah. If your intent is to relieve pain, and through that, it goes into death without knowing that, that's different. But if your intent for giving the shot is to eventually kill the, cut the individual's life short, it's still the, what was your intent in doing that in the first place? Right. Right. I mean, it's, like, it's like the question if somebody who's lived a full life has ravaging cancer and they say, you know what, I don't really want to take the treatment. It, I, I'll just let it take me. I don't want the last few months of my life to be wiped out by the radiation and stuff. Has that person just killed themselves? Of course not. You know, um, foregoing treatment, abstaining from things that could help promote life like a ventilator are not in the same category as introducing things that kill. Um, now, it's not to say they're simple ethical questions. They're just not the same thing. That, that's all I'm trying to argue. Not that, oh, yeah, of course. Um, you know, I'm just, they're not the same thing. That's all I'm trying to argue at the moment. Anything else? We, we're going a little over time, but we started late because I went late. It's all my fault. I know. Um, going once, going twice. Have a good afternoon. God bless. <laughs>